Thank you, worship team, for leading us so well. I want to begin today's sermon by telling you about a rock band called Aerosmith. Now, initially, that may seem like it has absolutely nothing to do with Revelation chapter 16, but it actually does. Just give me a minute. I'll get there. Uh, The five band members of Aerosmith are all from Boston. They met in 1969, formed the band in 1970. There's a good 70s shot of them. They were extremely successful from 1970 to 1980, and uh, they released five albums during that time, and today those are all certified platinum. Now, if you need a little reminder about what's gold record status and what is platinum, gold record is when you sell half a million albums and one million singles. Platinum is a million albums and two million singles. So to have all five albums in a 10-year period be platinum, uh, that pretty much put them into legend status as a rock band. Their nickname was the Bad Boys of Boston, and they absolutely lived up to it. Uh, pretty, pretty heavy drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Uh, the band had a huge amount of infighting. Two guys left. And so for the first kind of six years of the 1980s, Uh, Aerosmith was kind of non-existent. Then in 86, they got the band back together and had a comeback. And throughout the 90s, kind of rose to even greater heights than they had before. In 1992, Aerosmith was writing music and recording for their new album. And that's when the race riots in Los Angeles broke out. And as they watched those unfold on TV, as they talked to friends who were in the middle of it, Uh, it kind of caused them to pause and reflect and stop. And they looked around at the world and all that was happening. And out of that came the song, Living on the Edge. Now, most of their rock songs were about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But occasionally they wrote something that was pretty profound. And so we're going to crank up the sound this morning and we're going to listen to. If, uh, If you have hearing aids, you can turn them down. I'm just giving you a fair warning right now. And uh, we're going to listen to the first part of a song called Living on the Edge. Well, oddly enough, they didn't intend it, I'm sure, 
But that's pretty close to the warning that Revelation chapter 16 is giving us. Revelation chapter 16 is about seven bowls of God's wrath that are poured out on the evil that human beings choose to do. But also several of the bowls are poured out directly against the beast that we've encountered in Revelation, his throne and his forces, which we have learned is symbolic of Satan and his demonic powers. The world and its sin has pushed us to truly be living on the edge. There's indeed something wrong with the world today. This chapter is a symbolic vision of just how seriously God takes moral and spiritual evil and how he feels about it. If we don't welcome the wrath of God on evil in this world, if we stop caring about what is right and wrong, then just like the song says, something's wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way, and God knows it ain't his. This week I was watching CBC News, and they were getting street interviews, asking people on the street what they thought about the SNC-Lavalin scandal that's going on. And whether they were upset with the way that the government had done things. And they interviewed this guy in his late 30s. And he says, I know what the government did wasn't right. I know it was wrong. But I really don't think it was that bad. As long as we're trying to have jobs, then no big deal. That is essentially saying, I'm okay with corruption as long as we get some jobs out of it. Something's wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way, and God knows it ain't His. It isn't God's way of looking at things and seeing things. Tolerating evil and injustice and wrongdoing in ourselves and in others, that's exactly what human beings do. That isn't what God does. And that is what we're going to discover as we go through Revelation 16 and encounter the seven bowls of God's wrath. What at first sounds like absolutely terrible news might in the end just be the thing that saves us. Let's jump in and read our first seven verses of Revelation 16. It says, Then I heard a voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. First angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Second angel poured out his bowl in the sea, and it turned into blood, like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people, and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserved. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's what I've entitled the first point, Just is Your Judgment. Well, we've built a case over the previous uh, 16 sermons that a solid interpretation of the book of Revelation takes the symbols and the language seriously. That means... If it's intended as a symbol, we understand it as a symbol. That sounds pretty simple, but that's where a huge amount of commentators have gone wrong. 
especially about this chapter. Many, many books that have lined the Christian bookstore shelves. The author is looking for a literal moment in our history when people have chosen to receive the mark of the beast, a literal 666 stamped on their right hand or their forehead, when those people experience the first bowl of God's wrath and they get actual festering sores on their skin. Well, we learned a number of weeks ago that the mark of the beast wasn't a literal stamp of those three numbers, but rather it's a symbol. When we give our minds and our will, our foreheads, or when we give our actions, our right hand, allegiance to the beast who represents the evil and demonic twisting of politics and economics and culture to selfish and evil ends. When we give our worship to that, then we're taking the mark of the beast. In the same way, the first bowl of wrath won't be a literal plague where people are covered with ugly, festering sores. Both of these are powerful, vivid symbols and images that stayed with the Apostle John and they stay with us. All seven bowls convey just how seriously God stands in opposition to all that is wrong, corrupt, evil, and unholy in our world. Daryl Johnson says it this way, In salvation history, God's holiness, the burning zeal for everything that is right, coupled with a perfect hatred of everything that is evil, was revealed and experienced by the people. The seven bowls of God's wrath are, therefore, the natural, automatic reflex of holiness. The bowls are the logical response to evil and impurity. So what do these first four bowls specifically symbolize? Our other companion throughout the series has been Bible scholar Edwin Walhut. So what he says about the first bowl. <coughs> he says, The way of wickedness and sin, symbolized by the mark of the beast and the worship of its image, is negative, unproductive, and deceitful, bringing sorrow, shame, and failure. Instead of the glowing prosperity, it falsely promises. I love this line. You don't get to genuine life via the devil. Follow him as Adam and Eve discovers and yet the opposite of what he promises. Receive the mark of the beast in your forehead and you get ugly and painful sores. Award-winning Christian author Philip Yancey he talks about growing up in Atlanta, Georgia in the late 1960s when racism in the American South was at an all-time high. He says, I never killed anyone, but I surely hated. He says, I laughed when the KKK burned the cross in the front lawn of the first black family to move into our neighborhood. And when white people from the northern states came down to support Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and got injured or killed, my friends and I shrugged and said, serves them right for coming down here and stirring up trouble. God's wrath is on evil and wrongdoing. And when Philip Yancey was lost in racism and hatred, he suffered the effects of the first bowl of God's wrath. And when he writes about it now, and he's long since changed his ways and his thinking and repented of all that, he looks back on that period of sin in his life 
And he says it's exactly what Revelation 16 16 describes. It's like I had ugly, painful, festering sores. The second and third bowls of God's wrath are poured out and destroyed the sources of water and so human life. Robert Wall is helpful here. He says, The blood which has polluted the waters carries an ironical meaning. On the one hand, Christ's blood purchases the people for God. Yet, on the other hand, his atoning blood is rejected by the people who had the mark of the beast. The blood plague envisions God's righteous judgment of a people who rejected the blood of the Lamb. Well, polluted water ultimately means death, and it's a symbol of spiritual death, separated from God for eternity. It doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to those who reject Christ until their dying breath. The fourth bowl of God's wrath is poured out on the sun. The sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify God. If you've ever gotten a really bad sunburn, you squirm at the mere mention of such horrific imagery. Sin burns people. Rejection of God, embracing of the evil and the ways of the beast burn people. Mark Driscoll in his book, The Radical Reformation, he had the incredible pleasure of interviewing a young woman who had become a Christian in his church in Seattle. When she felt ready to share her story, she gave permission for Mark to put her story in his book. And as he heard the entirety of his story, his heart just broke for her. Her name was Steph. And as a young teenage girl, Steph's parents dragged her to a fundamentalist church. She recalled, I was raised in a very legalistic church. I was kicked out when I was a teenager. From then on, I wanted nothing to do with the church or God or anything. Sin on the part of the legalistic church. Sin on Steph's part for rejecting God. The wrath of God against sin and evil has, not, has natural consequences. And in a metaphorical sense, Steph in her life began to kind of feel the burn of the fourth bowl of God's wrath. At 13, she started smoking and drinking. By 16, she's doing drugs and starting to deal with them. She started sleeping around. By 17, she had moved out of her house, was living in a seedy hotel with a needle exchange program at the front desk and cockroaches in the room. She began waitressing at a strip club, but after a few weeks, realized the best money was in exotic dancing. So that's what she became. Can you imagine her parents' absolute anguish and heartbreak at this moment? The wrath of God against sin is burning, and Steph and her parents are feeling it. At the club, she ends up meeting the guy that she would one day marry. He convinced her she shouldn't be doing drugs. She kept doing them, but after a a terrible overdose experience and almost dying, in his convincing words, she actually quit the drugs. About three months later, they found an apartment and moved in together. A few more years go by and things started to change. Greg, the guy she was living with, encountered all these Christians from this church in Seattle. They began to to share with them. He ended up hosting a Bible study in their home. 
We heard in that fourth bowl in verse 9 that God's wrath is poured out on people who are following the beast and refusing and receiving his mark because they refuse to repent, refuse to turn around and embrace Christ. That is exactly what happened with Steph. She recalls saying, one morning when Greg got home from work, I sat him down and I told him, this is how things are going to be. She says, I don't care if you have this weird Bible study in our house and I don't care if you read the Bible by yourself. Maybe you can even talk about it. But I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want anything to do with God or church. You do your thing, I'll do mine. She is still unrepentant, still refusing to acknowledge Christ. She says, since the study was in our home and I was playing hostess, I started to overhear the Word of God. In the beginning, I kept my distance, but over time, it really started to get to me. At the time, it seems that I couldn't get anything right. God was using my friends to tell me about Him, to show me where in my life I was off track. To be honest, I didn't like their honesty. I didn't like hearing that my life and my choices I were making were not what God wanted. I didn't want to change my ways. I had believed for so long that I did what I wanted to do. No one had the right to tell anyone what to do. But then she says this amazing thing. She says, however, I started to notice that God was the one who could say what I was doing was wrong. I didn't like that either. Steph, the exotic dancer, ex-drug addict, is realizing exactly what Revelation 16, 7 is trying to tell us when it says, Yes, Lord God, Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's a crucial place that every single human being has to get to. When they say, yeah, other people can't judge me, but there is one who can. There is one who is the ultimate standard of right and wrong in the universe, and that is God himself. When God dumps the bowls of his wrath out, he is the only one justified and worthy to do so. So that raises the obvious question, why is God so mad at sin? Why is that such a a big deal to him? God is mad at sin because it destroys people's lives. Steph's drug abuse, the sleeping around, the shacking up with the guy, the exotic dancing, all of it was actually harmful to her. And God's heart broke for Steph. You know, our world thinks that God is condemning them in sin. But in fact, what's happening is God is condemning the sin in them and their choice to hold on to it instead of turning back to himself. All right, we've heard about the first four bowls of wrath. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 10 and hear about the final three bowls. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony, cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth 
of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits and perform signs, and they go to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. And then they gathered the kings together in a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 40 kilograms, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. In all of these seven bowls of God's wrath is an echo of the ten plagues God sent on Pharaoh and Egypt in order to get them to release the Hebrew slaves. One of the ten plagues that God sent on the Egyptians was a complete full day of total utter darkness. 24 solid hours of darkness. The fifth apocalyptic plague, Edwin Walhut tells us, is clearly the same, with the addition that it resulted in agony, pain, and sores. Just as Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go, so too these followers of the beast refused to repent and do what is right. One thing he can say for us human beings, we are consistent. We were saying no to God in 2500 B.C., and we're still saying no to God in 2019 A.D. The darkness inside the human heart is given symbolic expression with the tipping of this bowl. The sixth bowl is the hardest to interpret, but several things guide us well. Once this bowl of God's wrath is poured out, it dries up the great river Euphrates. Now we remember that John is given this apocalyptic vision. He's given the whole book of Revelation while he is on the island of Patmos, just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. That whole region at the time was under the control of the Roman Empire. And John's seven churches that he writes to, these congregations that are under persecution, that, that his heart cares so much about, they are under the, the influence of the emperor Domitian. Now, in the Roman mindset, everything east of the river Euphrates was the great unknown. They weren't sure who was out there. They were pretty sure it was scary, and there were some nasty people groups out there, but they didn't know exactly who was out there. Now, it says that the demonic spirits look like frogs, and it comes out of kind of this unholy trinity of the Antichrist, the beast out of the water, and the false prophet. It's an evil mocking of the true Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These demonic spirits that look like frogs tempt the kings of the east to come to a battle at a place called Armageddon. Daryl Johnson reminds us that there is no place in the whole of the Middle East known by the name Armageddon. 
which suggests that this name, like so many other names in Revelation, is a symbol. The name Armageddon is a Greek I can say it, transliteration of the Hebrew word Har Megiddo, meaning the mountain of Megiddo. There is a place 60 miles north of Jerusalem near Mount Carmel known by the name of Megiddo, but it's not a mountain, it's a plain. And there was a battle fought there in the first half of the Bible between King Josiah of Judah and King Necho of Egypt. Judah was defeated. The Egyptians beat up the Jews. Their defeat resulted in the decline of the kingdom of Judah, eventually led to their capture and exile and into Babylon for 70 years. So Daryl Johnson sums up how all this ties together. He goes, the new Babylon... Rome, in John's day, anti-God kingdoms and ours, is to bear the judgment of God at the place where previously the old Babylon had been in effect, the conqueror. Now that makes a lot more sense. Fits with the symbolic nature of all these things in Revelation. As an aside, you can see how important it is that the Bible ties together. Knowing the first half of the Bible helps us understand the second half, and specifically the book of Revelation. The longer you study and read and pray through the Bible, the more you realize it's God's word and it's powerful to change us. Well, the seventh bowl is thrown into the air, into the atmosphere. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul describes who is in charge of the air, the atmosphere. It says, "...in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world." and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This bowl is ultimately poured out against the evil trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. A horrifyingly huge earthquake shakes the cities of the nations with hailstones weighing 100 pounds each. But still, there is no repentance. And again, People are shaking their fist at God, refusing to repent. So those are the seven bulls and what they symbolize. Now the whole time you've been kind of wondering, Darren, what happened with that girl, Steph? What happened to her story? All right, I'll tell you. Over the summer, Greg and I spent many hours with people from the church, she said. We had dinners and did barbecues. We just simply got to know people. But with that, we also received some good godly teaching from the elders and the members alike. Basically, I figured out that God was not thrilled with where we were in our lives, and he was taking the opportunity to let us know in a very upfront and honest way. She says, I was informed my stripping job was sinful. Mind you, I had a feeling it wasn't the best of occupations, But I was positive that God could work through it somehow and I'd be able to keep dancing. In the end, it was hard to take when I was told I had to quit. I didn't know how we were going to survive with so much less money per month. What I didn't understand at the time is that God is my Father. He is there to take care of me, to help me, and when times are good and when times are bad. God also informed me that Greg and I were living in sin and felt compelled to get married. And then she writes these beautiful lines. She says, I'm not exactly sure 
when I officially became a Christian. What I do know is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of his people. He shed more than tears for their salvation. He suffered brutally and more than any of us will ever know. Three days later, rose again to conquer sin and death and the devil so that we too may rise again and live with him someday. I am so, so thankful. Did you hear it in Steph's story as we went through it? The judgment of God on sinful choices. That didn't prevent her from experiencing the grace and forgiveness and salvation of God. It was part of her journey to understand God hates drug abuse because it traps us in addictions. God hates us throwing our sexuality around with multiple partners outside of marriage relationship. Not because he wants to take away our pleasure and our fun, but because he wants to protect the deepest, most vulnerable parts of our hearts and our souls. God hates the exploitation of women through exotic dancing or pornography. Not because he wanted to take Steph's job away, but because he wanted to restore her dignity and self-worth and beauty so that the intimacy she shared with Greg could be just between the two of them. Ocean View Community Church, everybody listening online today, hear this loud and clear. The seven bowls of God's wrath are a necessary part of the good news of the gospel. Because if you don't know what you are saved from, why do you care about getting saved at all? All right, our final verse, Revelation 16, 17. Seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Third and final choice, or a third point is it comes down to a choice. Well, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John and his recording of Jesus' death on the cross, that phrase, it is done or it is finished, might ring a bell. John 19, 28-30 recorded the moment that Jesus dies on the cross and what he says from the cross. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be filled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. It is done. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John wrote the gospel of John. John wrote the book of Revelation, and there's no doubt in my mind there's a link. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was the moment when God asked for the price to be paid for the debt of sin. Jesus steps up at that moment and says, I'll do what no one else in all of creation is worthy to do. I will pay the price. I will take the punishment. I will take the full force of the seven bulls of God's wrath on evil and sin and give my life as a payment. He did it for Philip Yancey, who began life as a full-out racist. He did it for Steph the stripper, who spiraled into drug addiction and promiscuity. And he hung on that cross and suffered excruciatingly in the physical and spiritual realms for you and me too.
Once we understand God's hatred against evil and sin and how it destroys us, his children that he loves so much and this amazing world that he's given to us as a gift, then we are finally ready to hear the good news of the gospel. I want to close today by telling you about a great Christian man you've probably never heard of. His, man, his name was Will Campbell. And he found himself in the 1960s in the middle of the civil rights battle, helping out Dr. Martin Luther King and the whole movement for racial equality. Now, Will Campbell was white, but he was right there in the middle of the battle, arm in arm with all the African-American people. One of the guys who was constantly challenging him in his face was an agnostic newspaper editor by the name of P.D. East. And P.D. East could not understand how Will was still a Christian when all around him in the South were these white Christians in churches that were incredibly racist. And every day, P.D. East would taunt him about it. He said, Will, how can you handle that? But Will stubbornly refused. He said, no, you're seeing sin in those churches. But those churches contain the same gospel that's the solution to all of this mess. Finally, one day, Will Campbell was riding in a car with P.D. East, and P.D. East turned to him and said, okay, give it to me in 10 words or less. What's the whole message of the Christian faith? And Will Campbell wrote that incident down in his journal, what happened that day. He says, we were going somewhere and he popped this question let me have it let me have the core message of the christian faith in 10 words he says i took a deep breath and this is what came out of my mouth we're all bastards but god loves us anyways (laughs) it's actually only eight words he had two to spare you know that's pretty good it's a little crude but it's full of truth And I would only add that the proof of God's love for us is what he did in Christ, redeeming the world back to himself. A world that is continually living on the edge and about to fall off. Something is wrong in the world today. And thanks to Revelation 16, we know what it is. Sin and evil. Thanks be to God that he pours out his seven bowls of wrath and then a most amazing act of love. In all of history, Jesus steps up and paid the price that you and I never could so that we can live a life of freedom, joy, and peace. Amen.